Faye Bartley D'Angelo received her THD from Harvard Divinity School. Her revised dissertation is soon to be published in the T&T Clark series, Explorations in Reformed Theology, with the title, Sexual Difference, Gender, and Agency in Karlbart's Church Dogmatics. Being co-editor of that T&T Clark series, and having known Faye for, as a friend for many years, I am obviously very, very biased. However, I will tell you this in advance for free. This is a book you need to read. It's an exceptional treatment, and it bears the hallmarks of the best scholarship on Bart. Rigor, critique, and, as is always important in Bart scholarship, a fascinating constructive horizon. Dr. Bartley D'Angelo is presently managing editor of Harvard Theological Review and Harvard Divinity Bulletin. And I'm delighted that she'll deliver a lecture entitled Gender and the Morphological Imaginary in Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Bartley D'Angelo to the program. I'm going to begin today with a quotation taken from Church Dogmatics, paragraph 15. Barthes writes, it is essentially right when John of Damascus describes Mary's ear as the bodily organ of the miraculous conception of Christ. Bart quotes John of Damascus saying, the operation of the Holy Spirit at the conception of Jesus is one mediated through Mary's faith. Mary believes and by believing in the word of God spoken by the angel, she is thereby enabled to take the eternal word into herself and independently to bring about the beginning of the, of the Redeemer's life, end quote. Bart says a little further on, and I quote again, by being called the work of the Holy Spirit, the conception of Christ is actually withdrawn from any analogy save the analogy of faith, and like every genuine miracle, from any explanation as to its how. I'm going to focus on Bart's construction of Mary's conceiving virgin body in paragraph 15 and its connection to the analogy of faith. And I do so to interrogate the theological significance of this passing slippage between Mary's ear and her vagina. For here, perhaps, we catch a fleeting unveiling of an imaginary bodily morphology in the penetration of Mary's ear by a Logos-infused spirit. I'm going to use this earlier construction of Mary in Church Dogmatics 1-2 to engage, uh, from one particular angle, a set of questions that arise around the viability and limits of Bart for theologies of liberation specifically as these, concern, as these concerns play out in Barth's reading of the Genesis creation narratives. Barth's radical relationship has been a recurring theme in the talks we've heard these past few days. We've thought together about the political corrective potential in the irreducible alterity of God who's revealed in Christ. We thought about what this means for the ideologies that seek to harness God's power and that blind us to the differences and needs of the many creatures surrounding us. But there are a nagging set of questions among critics who appreciate Barth's radical relationalism, who appreciate the irreducibility of the divine other and its political potential for theologies of liberation. The questions are, does Barth's God actually create a space for creaturely differences? Or does his God have space only for lesser copies of God's self? Can Barth's theological imaginary accommodate multiple sites of creaturely difference and agencies without constructing them as potential threats to divine power? threats that must be neutralized first and set an abject dependency upon God in order to, be, to have any kind of relationship with God. 
These sorts of questions arise rather persistently when it comes to Bart's account of sexual difference and his subordination of women to men. A dominating God whose raw power to act, create, and save, and to correct sinners calls into existence imitative men, men who re reiterate this power in their control and domination of all other creaturely beings, or so the worry goes. In other words, does Bart's radical relationality ever really get off the ground? Or does it flounder upon his repetition of and legitimization of unjust social arrangements? I'm going to trouble the waters with a few quotes from Bart that evoke these sorts of worries. Going to Church Dogmatics 3.2 to paragraphs 44 and 45 where Bart lays out the analogy of relations centered around God's eternal decision to elect and create and sustain fellowship with the creature the other in the incarnate Logos. Uh, Bart writes, if in this decision of the creator for the creature, there arises a relationship which is not alien to the creator, to God as God, but we might almost say appropriate and natural to him, God repeats in this relationship ad extra, a relationship proper to himself in his inner divine essence. Entering into this relationship, he makes a copy of himself even in his inner divine being, there is relationship, end quote. A little further on, another quote. Thus the divine original creates for itself a copy in the creaturely world. The father and the son are reflected in the man Jesus, end quote. And another quote, the relationship of Jesus to the disciples is not original, but an exact copy of the relationship in which he stands to the father and the father to him. Such language of self-copying even if what has been copied is a relational orientation that is gratuitous and generous, is in itself worrying to the critics that I have in mind, critics who seek alternate, alternate economies of desire to replace fellow-centric economies of the same. And the worry is specifically with the shape and force at play in that relationship and unequal distribution of power where it arises. But we are reassured that the copied, reiterated, gracious orientation of the incarnate Christ toward the creature is to meet its needs. It's an openness and embrace of the other that we hope will support and embrace difference. We can find cause for hope in Bart's call to human beings to imitate this aid-ending gracious movement to other human beings. But then at points, Bart weaponizes this gracious movement of the incarnate Logos. In the same areas from which I've been quoting, I have small quotes. In speaking of the man Jesus as the realization, execution, and revelation of the creator's eternal electing decision, Bart describes him as, quote, the penetrating spearhead of the will of God, their creator. Penetrating because in him the will of God is already fulfilled and revealed, and the purpose of God for all men and creatures has thus reached its goal. And the spearhead to the extent that there has still to be a wider fulfillment of the will of God and its final consummation. Bart continues, quote, the man Jesus is the executive and revelatory spearhead of the will of God, fulfilled on behalf of creation because it is again his free choice to give his saving will, this spearhead, to realize and reveal it in this one." End quote. Now of the victims of this gracious assault, Bart writes, quote, as man he is the creature who is first struck by the spearhead of the gracious will of God, penetrating the world of creation, and first illuminated by the light which streams from it. It is this man himself who is affected when God invades his sphere, in the sphere to which Jesus as man also belongs, he is reached and pierced by God's love, however much he may wriggle. And yet again, the weaponized word made flesh that assaults this wiggling creature is Christ's teaching, his life, his interactions with his fellows, his compassion, his devotion to them and their needs, his sacrifice for them at 
immense cost to himself, all of which correspond to reflect and reveal the Creator's almighty summons and address to us today. So what do we do with this language that Bart at times uses when he summons the violent language of assault, an unsolicited advance, language that cannot but trouble us today deeply in this hashtag MeToo moment? Now the text, he names this person our neighbor, companion and brother, the Good Samaritan. And here, he does not evoke the imaginary, um, the imagery entailing unsolicited intrusions upon the boundaries of the self. We might think, for example, of the scene he constructs in 3.2 of a crucified Christ standing in po the poverty of suffering solidarity amongst sea of miserable outcasts, the dredges of humanity. He confronts Nietzsche with this image and invites him to recognize himself and his neighbors in the sea of fellow sufferers. We see here more of an invitation than a penetration. And this is but one of many images Bart uses to depict ecstatic, self-transcending activity of Christ and just these sort of images that might be helpful tools for liberative purposes. But should we simply bypass and ignore the other more troubling imagery? I would argue that instead we interrogate and track it carefully. We, fear we should seek where such imagery appears and towards what ends it is deployed. When we do so, we find that Bart often weaponizes the divine address in order to humble, judge, and correct, and redirect arrogant, the arrogant, self-absorbed modern human subject. He usually has the male in view, but sometimes he has feminists in view too. And toward this end, we can hear him speaking of the revelatory address as an unsolicited assault and imposition opposed upon from without precisely to correct and humble the arrogant. And I hear Bart doing something of this sort in his words about the penetrated wiggling worm. But then in other passages, he uses the same language to repress feminist protest. And so to use Bart in constructive ways for liberative ends requires attending to such moves and ends very carefully. Today, I'm going to briefly undertake this sort of exercise and interrogation in one site where we find an eruption of virile imagery for the divine activity, Bart's readings of the creation narratives. I will look at some of the ways in which divine activity is deployed to first construct and then evict female, fecund female bodies from any symbolic place of value in the narrative arc of covenant history that Bart outlines in his figurative reading of Genesis. With this focus in mind, I will turn to a few theologians first who engage Bart's theology toward constructive ends, but who worry about the questions of difference and the logic of the same, and at the times, raw phallic power of the creator God, and who find reasons for these worries in Bart's reading of Genesis 2. Catherine Keller expresses rather effectively the set of concerns I've outlined in her Faces of the Deep, and specifically as they come into play in Bart's doctrine of creation. She appreciates that Bart, quote, meant to honor the creation complex of finite and uncertain relations precisely by proclaiming the infinitive qualitative difference of its creator, end quote. She recognizes that, in a limited sense, Bart sought what feminism has since found, a radical relationality or an intersubjectivity in which difference is not swallowed up by the self but enhanced. But she uncovers in Bart's reading of Genesis 1 a phallocentric logic that swallows up difference distorting and undermining the liberative potential of his project. She finds a hyper-masculine, self-sufficient God and a dominating divine intimacy. She, she finds a divine self-control that heightens in direct proportion to human self-sufficiency. With, with these images in view, she asks, quote, is the self-possessive modern subject that Bart denounces merely displaced upward, projected onto the property lord in heaven, 
is his attempt to put modern man in his place, in his attempt to put modern man in his place, Bart seems to have transferred to the Lord's account our most modern claims to epistemological certainty and property, end quote. And she continues, for in his revelation, God controls his property, elevating our words to their proper use, giving himself to be their proper object, and therefore giving them truth. In other words, guaranteeing in writing his property's proper theology, end quote. She suspects that Bart's gender logic with its dominating language of order only makes explicit and literal motives that otherwise remain metaphorically indirect to be teased out of small print of bigger matters, she says. Graham Ward shares some of these worries. Looking to Genesis 2, to Bart's reading of the scene of the creation and naming of Eve, he finds an economy of the same that effaces difference also. A phallocentrism in which the sexuality in which sexuality is inscribed from the perspective of men, where no genuine sexual difference can be established because the other sex is always interpreted from the perspective of the one monolithic male sex. He writes, quote, the female is only a variant of the male, his other half, that which fulfills and supports him. End quote. She is defined in terms of what the male lacks. She is complement and not difference. Thus Ward finds a Bart who has reaffirmed, so thus Ward finds a Bart who has reaffirmed the social, social sexual status quo. But Ward finds resources in Bart that recover the political potential of his radical relationality. He finds the Trinitarian excess and overflow to the creaturely other, an economy of desire that is not based on the lack that drives Adam to seek a partner in Eve. And he finds an economy, an economy of the gift of God's lavish love that pours out from the very excesses of God's internal gratuitous economy towards the creaturely other. Willis Jenkins shares some of the concerns of Keller and Ward, but he finds this economy of excess and overflow and even maternal generativity in Bart's reading of Genesis 2. Particularly in the Garden of Eden, he finds such emergency stands in dialectical relation to the hyperphallic, the hyperphallic language in Genesis 1. God creates a garden that, like God's very self, overflows in abundant gift-giving aid to other creatures in water, mist, and bountiful fruit. And Adam must benefit from and imitate this excess and overflow. Thus, unlike many of, um, of ecotheology's critics, Jenkins secures in Bart's reading of Genesis 2 a resource for ecotheology and environmental ethics. That a resource that cultivates responsive practices, calling readers to recognize their situatedness in a cosmos that is the special place of God's indwelling. But Jenkins has similar worries to Keller and Ward, for he agrees with other critics that, like Jürgen Moltmann and, and Michael Welker, that Bart's divine creative action might require some reconfiguration. Its lordship service paradigm, appropriated from the modernist subject, leads humans, males in particular, to assume them for themselves an administrative responsibility for the proper order of creation and for social relations, relations that they inevitably order to serve their own ends. These three critics, among others, worry about the ways in which Bart evokes a dominating creator to legitimize human dominion over creation and male dominion over female. As I shall show, agreeing with Keller, but also in different ways with the others, that Bart's occasional use of phallic, even ejaculative language, to conceptualize divine, creative, and relational activity in the face of abject creaturely intercapacity is deeply intertwined with a set of concerns. I will first visit Bart's construction of Mary and the Virgin Conception, 
which will enable me to delve further into the ways in which Bart's reading of Genesis 1 and 2 construct female gener generativity in order to evict it from the scene, to refuse it any theological significance or role in the figurative work that creation narratives do for Bart in anticipating the redemptive work of Christ. And I will point to places where a generative female body surfaces only briefly as a threat to divine creative potency that must be first neutralized. I turn first to the function of Mary's virginal body and, an, her, and the way she serves as an analogy of faith. Mary of the Lucan Annunciation scene appears in the first volume of Church Dogmatics as a model of the obedient response to the revelatory address. Bart focuses on her words, I am the handmaiden of the Lord, let it be unto me according to thy word. With these words, Bart sees Mary exercise her free decision to acknowledge, embrace, and vocally profess, confess what she has heard in the revelatory event, the angelic promise that she will conceive as a virgin, the very son of God. She is one of many biblical figures that Bart uses in this way and towards the end of robbing his readers of any resource or capacity in and of themselves to hear the revelatory address spoken through creaturely mediums. If we are to hear God speak in the words of scripture and proclamation, if we are to know something of God in these creaturely mediums, it can only be through the miracle of a divine act wherein human concepts and words are made temporarily to communicate knowledge of God's will and nature in the person of Christ. In other words, we bring nothing to the table, an intellect, will, or feeling that can possibly cooperate with or collaborate with God's revelatory address. And we have no intrinsic capacity for God's self-revelatory work and saving work upon us. The figure of Mary is an especially helpful model for Bart, and he puts her to work in refuting both Roman Catholic and Protestant configurations of a be human being who collaborates with or is well suited to God's revelatory work. For Mary to serve as a model human agent, a model hearer of the divine address, she must bring no inherent quality, worth, or piety to the event of the divine revelatory encounter, nothing that makes her intrinsically worthy of the grace for which she is elected. The first uh, time in which Bart uses her is in uh, paragraph 22, actually it's not the first, and one of the times in which Bart uses her in uh, Church Dogmatics 1-2 is in par paragraph 22. Very briefly, she appears here when Bart evokes her words, let it be unto me according to thy word, specifically as a model for the proper orientation and attitude of the preachers and dogmaticians. As would-be hearers of the divine address mediated through scripture, the preacher's task in proclamation is to re-speak what she or he has heard and declared with the hope that in these words, others will hear the divine address. With this in mind, Bart writes, quote, if the human word of Christian preaching is to perform the service of leading to the hearing of God's word, it must be a selfless human word, a human word which will not say this or that in a spirit of self-assertion, but devote itself only to letting God's own words say what must be said. Like a window, it must be a transparent word, or like a mirror, a reflecting word. The more it repudiates and rejects anything which might intervene as a third element between God's word and the human hearer, the less it obtrudes itself in its own solidity between God and the hearer. The more it is positively an indication, a pointer, and compulsion to hearing the word of God itself, and negatively a hushing of all the possible notes of false adultery and human exaltation, the more it is this, the better it will be." End quote. 
for scriptural examples of such speech, Bach evokes both Mary's response to the Annunciation and Christ's words in the Garden of Gethsemane. A quote again, we may be permitted to remind ourselves at this point that in medieval art, a frame of clear-cut glass was used for symbolic pictures of the Virgin. This was an implied allusion to Luke 1.38, behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. We may also recall Matthew 26.39, not as I will, but as thou wilt. It is pure vessels like this, which the divine Logos seeks, creates, and finds in the proclamation of the church as well." End quote. So let's keep in mind as we move forward, not only Mary's ear vagina, with which I began, but now the vessel Mary rendered a translucent plane of glass, lacking any sort of self-assertion that would obscure the activity of the, of the divine self-revelatory word. I tag the language of self-assertion here too because self-assertion is an activity Bart frequently associates with feminist protest and revolt. But Mary is not always so translucent to Bart, for in Bart's Advent lectures written in roughly the same period, her role as a model agent is fleshed out in an extended reading of Luke 1. Here again, her words express the obedient hearing of the divine address to an audience of theologians and preachers. Here, Gabriel appears first to Zechariah and then to Mary, promising impossible pregnancies. Both the postmenopausal Elizabeth and the Virgin Mary will conceive. The, reproduct the reproductive capacities of both women have been neutralized, turned to transparent glass by a miracle that makes possible an otherwise impossible pregnancy. In his description of the scene in which the pregnant Elizabeth and Mary greet each other, we do find a Bart who does not, at least not always, appear to be uncomfortable with pregnant bodies as such, whatever we are to make of Keller's critique that we will soon hear. For Bart connects their fellowship and their physical pregnancy with the community of the church and the presence of the divine word within it. Unquote. Where there are such people who receive the promise, such as Mary and such as Elizabeth, where the church is, there is what is called pregnancy and physical life. There is expectancy and the presence of what is expected. There is not only a knowledge of grace, but there is grace itself. Where the church is, there is he in the midst of them. There is he who is the hope of the church without whom there would be no church, as little as the world which God has created from nothing." End quote. So the pregnant bodies of Mary and Elizabeth do find a place in his theological imaginary in this scene, but only once the possibility of, of conceiving has been fully neutralized by the divine and miraculous act, and in order for the miraculous act to be seen as such. If the quote with which I began displaces a vagina with ear, their pregnant bodies are displaced by a church vessel impregnated through the spirit by the Logos. Let's keep in mind as we move forward Bart's reference here at the end of that quote that I just read to the world created from nothing. The divine creator tends to be on Bart's mind when he speaks of these miraculous conceptions. Bart's most extended discussion of Mary is found in Church Dogmatics 1-2 in paragraph 15, where he tends more closely to the miracle of conception itself than to the words of Mary. Christology is the focus of paragraph 15, specifically the doctrine of Christ's two natures as encapsulated in the creedal formula, very God and very man. Bart gives the virgin conception a prominent place in this discussion of Christology. His focus here is the Virgin Mary, both as a reference to the creed, the born of a Virgin Mary, as well as Mary, the character in the Lucan Annunciation narrative, but he's in this case preoccupied with the former, the creedal title. Bart argues 
that the virgin conception is a necessary doctrine because it serves as a sign that points beyond itself to the mystery of the incarnation, to the union of the logos with the human nature. The creedal born of a virgin does not explain that mystery, he says, but rather casts a light on its very inexplicity by foregrounding the utter incapacity of the creature for the work God does with it. Bart draws analogies between the incapacity of Christ's human nature for its union with the Logos, Mary's incapacity to conceive without a male partner, and the reader's incapacity to acknowledge, comprehend, and confess the creedal claim that Christ is both very God and very man, and that he was born of a virgin. At all three levels, in all three analogies, divine activity must overcome human incapacity. Mary's profession of faith, let it be to me according to your word, once again exemplifies to the reader the faithful hearing, the obedient hearing, and response to the divine disclosure of these two miracles. It exemplifies the faithful response to the creedal declaration that Christ was very God and very man and born of a virgin. This is that which Bart's readers should imitate as they consider the creedal confession. Bart shows no real interest in Mary's maternal fecundity or in any aspect of her maternal relationship to Christ, to his gestation, his birth, to anything other than the miracle of the conception itself. All else would be obstacles clouding the sheet of transparent glass. And so Bart's interest in Mary's conceiving body resides precisely in what it lacks. And it lacks two things. Firstly, the virgin conception lacks the sexual union of man and woman. And secondly, the virgin conception excludes the activity and desire of the male master of human history and culture. The first point of exclusion, the virgin birth, quote, means birth without previous sexual union between man and woman. Another quote, the event of sex cannot be considered at all as the sign of the divine agape, which seeks not its own and never fails. It is the work of willing, achieving, sovereign man, and at such points elsewhere than to the majesty of divine pity. Therefore, the virginity of Mary, and not the wedlock of Joseph and Mary, this is the sign of revelation and of the knowledge of the mystery of Christmas, end quote. Thus, while positively, for Bart, the virgin conception does mean that Christ was born of a mother's body and blood, like any other son, as he actually says, receiving something from his mother, and thus gesturing to her bodily fecundity, its, signi its significance resides especially in what it lacks. For whatever Mary does as the conceiving virgin, she does not do as a female partner in sexual reproduction. Mary's incapacity to conceive precisely as a virgin directs attention to the incapacity of human nature itself from the incarnation, and thus for God's revelation. And the connection that Bart makes explicit, quote, it is declared that in any other way, i.e. by the natural way in which a human wife becomes a mother, there can be no motherhood of the Lord, and so no such entrance gate of revelation into our world. In other words, human nature possesses no capacity for becoming the human nature of Jesus Christ, the place of divine revelation. It cannot be the workmate of God, if it actually becomes so, it is not because of any attributes which it possessed already and in itself, but, but because of what is done to it by the divine word, and so not because of what it has to do or give, but because of what, has, of what it has to suffer and receive at the hand of God." End quote. With the same concern in mind, Bart detaches the conception of Christ by the Holy Spirit from any analogy with sexual reproduction. For such an analogy would suggest a collaboration, a cooperation between God and Mary in the saving work and the saving knowledge of God. He writes, quote, we should not imagine the Holy Spirit fulfills the function of the male, end quote. He says the Holy Spirit is no apotheosized husband, 
There is no marriage between the two. He continues, quote, Joseph is completely set aside while God takes his place, not in the creative function of a creative father, but simply as God, as the creator who performs a miracle, creating and instituting something new, end quote. Again, the doctrine of creation is never far from the surface in these discussions. It is with these concerns in view that Bart proposes Mary's ear as the organ uh, of the Logos infused, that the art Logos infused spirit penetrates, in the quotation with which I began. It occurs in this context. He thus refuses any place for analogy between sexual copulation and the spirit's relation to Mary. And I quote again, by being called the work of the Holy Spirit, the conception of Christ is actually withdrawn from any analogy, save the analogy of faith, and like every genuine miracle, from any explanation of its how, end quote. What this means then is that what Mary's body brings to the table in all its fecundity must be bracketed. The reader's gaze redirected from its threatening productive material sex specificity to Mary's ears, in which Bart can see a reflection of his own orifices for the entry of the Logos. Again, Bart takes a side glance at the doctrine of creation, suggesting that the miraculous conception is a new creation, but it is not the conception, but the conception, the born of a Mary of the ex Maria is not a creation ex nihilo, for what is conceived of the Virgin is not a creation out of nothing, but it is nevertheless a new creature. The Virgin's body is the old humanity out of which God fashions something miraculously new. Any part that Mary's body might play could only obfuscate and cloud out the miracle of divine potency. And this is precisely what is at stake for Barton refusing creaturely fecundity and capacity in 3.1 as we shall see shortly. It is only in this way that the virgin's conception can function for Bart explicitly as a side barring any recourse to natural theology. The born of a virgin stands, quote, against creaturely self-glorification that might creep in with the assumption of the human nature by the logos against all natural theology, end quote. Mary's incapacity to know God in and of herself stands as a supporting connection to this bodily incapacity. Bart rejects a Roman Catholic reading that sees in Mary's words evidence of a piety that makes her worthy of the conception for which she is selected. Her response to Gabriel is not indicative of a receptive readiness, nor of a living passive and active receptivity to regenerating grace, nor of the creature's openness or readiness for its God. She's not in any way disposed to possess the grace of the motherhood in question. In her piety, she is no more capable of contributing to this divine work than her body is capable of conceiving without a male partner. On a positive side, Mary's response indicates that she is not merely a spectator of what God does with her body, bringing another being from it. For she participates in this creative act precisely in her response of faith. Barter aligns Mary's let it be to me according to thy word with figures like John the Baptist, arguing that she serves to point us beyond herself to Christ. Quote, the greatness of the New Testament figure of Mary consists in the fact that all the interest is directed away from herself to the Lord. It is her low estate and the glory of God which encounters her, not her own person, which can properly be made the object of a special consideration, doctrine, and veneration. Along with John the Baptist, Mary is at once the personal climax of the Old Testament penetrating to the New Testament and the first man of the New Testament. Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, be it to me according to thy word, she is simply man to whom the miracle of revelation happens, end quote. Here again, Bart connects Mary's let it be to me with Christ's not as I will, but as you will. It is an acquiescent to divine judgment accepted in trepidation. So the virgin exception, 
excludes sexual activity of both partners, but it also excludes the male from any role whatsoever. So it is the male who must be set aside here, Bart says, because, quote, he is peculiarly significant for the world history of human genius. What takes place in the mystery of Christmas is not world history and not the work of human genius. Here, Bart assumes the power and dominance of men in history, society, and culture. And he notes specifically the humbling effects of their exclusion in the power and activity from God's, or the exclusion of their power and activity from God's work. He attributes male predominance to a consequence of the fall, to the curse that Adam should rule over Eve, and the male tyranny that follows is a consequence of that. So Bart uses the virgin conception to humble the self-exalting master of human history, but in the same breath he uses it to silence feminist criticism of that mastery. Quote, if woman demands justification and rehabilitation in face of the significant preeminence of the male for world history, and it is better that she should not, let her keep to the side. By its limitation of man and his sin, it means at the same time the limitation of male preeminence. The sign declares that if Christ were the son of a male, he would be a sinner like all the rest, and therefore he cannot be the son of any male, end quote. These words are rather typical of Bart's various references to the feminist movement. Women ought not to make demands. They ought not to revolt or protest or complain, at least not too much, or show any sort of critical self-assertion. They ought rather restrain themselves and their complaints, however legitimate these complaints might be. And they ought to take comfort in the fact that God has condemned the proud in the figure of Mary. In Genesis 2, Bart secures an even more unassuming model of restraint for such feminists in the silent Eve, who does not vocalize her response to Adam's address. Bart's Christocentric figurative reading of Genesis 1 through 2 comprises most of the opening part volume of the Doctrine of Creation. And this is a very important biblical template with which Bart develops the Christocentric anthropology that follows. Bart positions God as a protagonist of the narratives creating out of nothing and then first creating out of nothing and then further creating from material that has no resources for the work God does with it. Although God's creation out of nothing was so close to the surfaces of the text we have just considered, the Virgin Mary does not appear in Bart's reading of the creation narratives, although we might expect her to play a supporting role. For as God creates something new out of something old in the conception of Christ, God does so also in the creation of Adam and Eve, using materials with no inherent capacity for the work God does with them. But there is a small difference. In these earlier texts, Mary's body was first neutralized of any generative capacities by the exclusion of a sex partner, human or divine, whereas here any generative capacity in the creation narratives that might be associated with a female body must be evicted altogether from the narratives so as not to compromise God's creative potency. We see this first in Bart's reading of Genesis 1-2. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. A verse that is sandwiched between verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and verse 2, and verse 3, and God said, let there be light. In a somewhat shocking move for those who find in this Genesis 1-2 beautiful suggestive imagery for God's relation to creation, Bart reconfigures the primeval waters as nothingness, the threat of all that God has not chosen and not willed. It is death, chaos, and disorder, disorder all that God has, re has rejected when he utters, let there be light. The spirit of Elohim hovering over these waters represents for Bart the sort of God that God has elected not to be, a God who is impotent and utterly powerless to affect the chaos 
as he utters his command. So Bart follows commentators who find in Genesis 1-2 the residue of a mythic cosmology that gestures to a matriarchal worldview <coughs> in, which a mother, in which mother figures took center stage. But unlike these commentators, Bart argues that the biblical narrator evokes these mythical worldviews in order to critique and reject them. The, hor the hovering spirit is not virile enough to represent Bart's God. He writes, quote, the spirit of Elohim is condemned to the complete impotence of a bird hovering or brooding over shoreless or sterile waters, end quote. It is an activity, this bird, that Bart finds akin to a passive contemplative role and function. And so Catherine Keller, critiquing this idiosyncratic treatment of Genesis 1-2, states, quote, the gender of the birds itself slides menacingly between mother and male. Bart bats a double whammy for Protestant virility, and an adequate masculinity flutters above an abortive femininity. Any concept, therefore, of a generative chaos, a spontaneous natality must be sterilized. As to any god who demonstrates queer male or any female propensities, Bart kills both birds with a single stone." End quote. She has good cause to say this. For Bart evokes generative female bodies in order to exclude them from any place or contribution. He speaks of this water as a boundless chaos, as a sterile and barren, completely lacking in any internal resources for the production of the orderly world God creates. He objects to interpret, as you see in these waters, a world egg or a mother womb which bears the future over which a dove-like spirit hovers. He writes, quote, all explanations of the origin of the world in terms of divine conception and birth are superseded when the and God said is put at the very beginning, end quote. So the imagery of verse two must be evoked by the narrator, Bart's narrator, and then rejected, for Bart finds it to be completely antithetical to the Old Testament God for whom, quote, creation means the eruption and revelation of divine compassion, end quote. Before I go on to further passages where we see these same sort of moves, I want to pause to note a common defense of Bart on this particular interpretive move, and it, it makes good points, some of which I agree with. Scholars have found in Bart's idiosyncratic treatment of Genesis 1-2 a subtle subversion of Nazi geopolitics and its alignment of maternity with blood and soil and its fascination with myths of origin. They see in Bart's masculinist assault on a maternal fertility Canaanite religion his own response to the socio-political cultural context of crisis in the 1930s and the early 1940s. They read here Bart's rejection of the Nazi blood and soil religion and its elevation of nature and maternity. From this contextual vantage point, Bart's treatment of typologically feminine moments like this one in verse two, his aversion to reading maternal imagery into the Genesis creation narratives can be seen as Bart's resistance to contemporaneous widespread over-evaluations of maternity and to the reduction of femininity to maternity. It can be read as his resistance and corrective to a scholarly and popular interest in prehistoric matriarchies and mythologies fueled by an anti-Semitic contempt for the Hebrew Bible. For scholars at the time sought in prehistoric mythologies an idealized maternity of a matriarchy lost to the reigning masculine virility of the current culture. Women and her function as mothers symbolized core values and need of retrieval to correct an overemphasis on male virility and intellect. The Jews were accused of perpetuating a monotheistic and paternalistic faith that destroyed the privileged place of the mother and her close relationship to blood, earth, and instinct and the role that occupied in society. And I agree with commentators that we do here in Bart's reading a subversion and rejection of this anti-Semitic valorization of a matriarchal mythology. 
And with this, but with this ideological context in mind, Willis Jenkins accuses Keller of a willful misreading of Barth in Genesis 1-2, a misreading that casts suspicion on her entire critique. Jenkins argues that Barth intentionally subverts the Nazi political ecologies in Genesis 1 in order to set up his reading of Genesis 2, where Barth embraces creaturely agencies of all sorts and celebrates the sort of typologically feminine mo moments that Keller finds to be missing in Genesis 1. Jenkins finds in Barth's Edenic garden a womb-like scene lush with hitherto banished and infertile waters of Genesis 1, where human beings, quote, arrive with the rain, end quote, and creaturely fecundity is everywhere present. Jenkins thus finds imagery in Bart's exegesis to offset his more, his more masculinist moments. And I agree with much of what Jenkins says here and what he finds here, but I will show that Keller's critique cannot be so easily dismissed, nor is this Edenic garden of Genesis 2 quite as womb-like as Jenkins imagines. For Bart continues to name and reject interpretive possibilities that find maternal generativity in Genesis 2. And as we have seen in his configuration of the Virgin Mary, Bart has deep theological and epistemological incentives to do so. And we see this in the way he treats, treats such imagery. For once again, he is attempting to guard against any reading that finds in these scenes of creation a capacity, with a, a capacity within the creature to collaborate and cooperate in God's creative and sustaining work. When God creates both animal life and human life from the earth, Bart disconnects the material God uses from any analogy to maternal fecundity. We hear him neutralizing the same threat he finds in the virgin conception. In the emergence of animals from the earth on the sixth day, Bart declares, quote, we are spared the thought of a bearing mother earth as the principle of the world, end quote. In Bart's reading, Genesis 2 opens on an earth already created, and Bart depicts the earth as barren, sterile, desert-like, and arid. We hear here in Bart's depiction the threat of death and dissolution into chaos lingering in that sterility. God selects a lump of this death-like earth and shapes it into Adam <coughs> and breathes life into him. Here again, Bart carefully detaches maternal imagery from the scene of Adam's creation. Quote, there is no place here, of course, for the idea of Mother Earth. It is quite impossible, both in the sense and the course of the saga and in the rest of the Old Testament. It is not the earth but God who produces man, and he does so according to his plan and decree in the free choice of a lump of earth and the sovereign formation of this lump. The Pauline association of creation with the resurrection of the dead is very much to the point in relation to Genesis 2.7, he continues, for the sake of clarity, it is best not to speak of a deep sleep of creation, which man originally slept, resting on the virgin soil, in full surrender to the blessed earth. What existed prior to the event described here was not man either in the womb of Mother Earth or sleeping on the earth. It was merely a lump of earth like others, but one out of which man was creatively fashioned by God. In the scene of Eve's creation from Adam, we see that Adam's body and the rib from which Eve is made parallels the earth and the lump from which God made Adam. Neither have any fitness or capacity for the life-giving creative work that God does with them. Adam's body, like the earth and like the body of the Virgin Mary, have nothing to contribute to the work of God. In the very construction of Eve, Adam, quote, did not participate actively in the creation of woman and therefore in the completion of his own creation, end quote. On the contrary, God puts him to sleep before extracting the rib to create Eve. <clears throat> However, Adam, like Mary earlier, does have a role to play <clears throat> in his free decision to accept and embrace the working gift of God. So Bart depicts Adam's naming of Eve as a response to the divine revelatory event that is her very gifting to Adam, just as he earlier depicted Mary's response to the angel. 
In these creative scenes, both Adam's and Mary's bodies and also the earth represent for Bart the incapacity of the creature for the work of God. Maternal imagery would suggest otherwise. Now, Mary is not present in the scene with her speech, nor she mentioned, only the silent Eve, whose narrative silence is transfigured by Bart into a transparent plane of glass. Bart declares that Eve does not herself participate in her own creation as Adam eventually does. She does not name Adam or express her choice of him or her rejoicing in him. But Bart sees through her silence her unspoken consent to, choose, to, to allow Adam to choose and name her as what he sees her to be. And so a woman's silence means yes in this male fantasy of a female love object whose will provides no obstruction to his own desire. Eve must be silent in this moment in order for Adam and all men with him to acquire a Christ-like agential prerogative over women, thus reducing women to atrophied versions of the men, just as men in turn are atrophied versions of the creator God. For what Bart restrains in Eve is the free decision to elect, choose, and speak, and to participate in her creation. She freely chooses to let Adam do this for her. With this construal of Eve, the words of the French feminist Ira Gray comes to mind. Woman is a woman as a result of a certain lack of characteristics. And so we must note that the one place where the female creature comes into view in Bart's reading, she is turned into a transparent sheet of glass through which Adam can read God's gift to him and name and, and, name and accept it as such. In both acts of divine creation, Adam points figuratively to Christ's death and resurrection. Adam is created from the dust of the earth and his existence is threatened by death and dissolution back into the barren, lifeless earth Yet his continued breathing is a reminder of God's life-sustaining intent, of God's determination to sustain life over against the threat of death and dissolution. The threat of death attaches to Adam in Eve's creation. In the divine rib extraction, Bart several times speaks of a death-threatening assault, a mortal wounding inflicted upon Adam, whom God first puts to sleep before cutting a rib from his side. Yet Adam does not die, deteriorating into the dust from which he was made. Bart asks, quote, is it not really death which has befallen him? But he does not have to die. He does not have to suffer because of his loss. He bears no wound, end quote. And again, Bart transfigures Adam into a sign of hope. Adam's very existence thus represents not just to Adam himself, but to the very barren earth that must bear vegetation, the triumphant sign of Christ, of his death and resurrection, of God's electing decision to preserve life over against the threat of death and dissolution, of God's persistent rejection of the chaos and nothingness in God's first creative act. Bart writes, quote, the hope of the arid, barren, and dead earth is that it will bear vegetation planted by God. According to the second account of creation, we must add that this is the hope of the whole creaturely world. It proceeds from death to life. But the realization of this hope waits for man as the being which earthy by nature will triumph over the aridity, barrenness, and deadness of the earth because God is his refuge and hope, because God has constituted himself as such. His existence will be the sign which will contradict this, the whole earthiness of this earth, and his act will be an act of release for the earth too, and for the whole creaturely world, end quote. So Adam's life points to Christ's death, and his death also to the promise and hope of the resurrection, and the final triumph over chaos and nothingness. In these scenes of creation, we see at work an analogy of faith that emphasizes the incapacity of the material for the creative work that God does with it. We see actors who become models of the proper obedience in the face of the miracle. Mary's bodily fecundity must be neutralized by the miracle in order to serve as a sign of faith. Provoking maternal imagery here suggests a creaturely capacity along the, 
collaborative sexual model in which there is a capacity and contribution on the part of the female body. The divine creative act must acquire a virile potency in order to exile any maternal metaphors from the scene of creation, any that might suggest any creaturely collaboration. So the generative functions of the female body are evoked in Bart's reading precisely for the purpose of eradicating them as resources for natural theology from which the dogmatician must turn away. But mothers also must be evict evicted from any symbolic place in the genealogical tables. For Bart detaches the theological significance of sexual difference and the relationship between the sexes from sexual reproduction itself. Through a series of prefigural interpretive moves, he configures the relationship between the sexes as an intersubjective encounter, a fellowship of election and counter-election that prefigures the relationship of Christ and the church. Bart carefully detaches sexual reproduction from the theological significance of sexual difference, and he downplays the divine command to human beings to be fruitful and multiply. The relationship of husband and wife prefigures that of Christ and the church, and re sexual reproduction does not play any part here. It does, however, have a figural function, which Bart finds in the Old Testament genealogies running from father to son. The figural function of fatherhood and motherhood in the Old Testament prophetically anticipate the coming of Christ, the son, the lover, the bridegroom, the husband. But Mark makes a point of noting that mothers do not appear in any of the genealogies of scriptures. What matters in these genealogies is a father reproducing himself in the son. Bart writes, quote, Woman is not mentioned in Genesis 5.3 in the table which follows or significantly in any of the genealogical tables of the Bible. End quote. Bart mentions women only to note the significance of their absence in any of the genealogical tables of the Bible. Curiously, he makes no mention of the New Testament lineage in Matthew 1, where four women appear in a genealogy that ends in the arrival of Christ. An extremely dubious oversight. He makes no mention either of Mary's part in the arrival of the Son, nor of the displacement of a human father in the virgin conception. Bart finds instead the Old Testament hope for a Messiah secured in a patrilineal genealogy that he describes as if it could proceed without any intervention or need of maternal bodies. He finds this prophetic preterilineage anticipated in the divine command to fish and birds to be fruitful and multiply. He finds here, too, a prefiguration of covenant history that will have as its center, quote, a godlike creature ordained for fatherhood and sonship and continuing its existence in the relationship of fatherhood and sonship, end quote. Again, with the fish, he makes no reference to third parties, mother figures, whose generative capacities are necessary to secure creaturely sonship, nor does he refer to daughters. And Bart neglects to recall at this juncture the many Old Testament narratives in which mothers play a prominent role, as do themes of barrenness, conception, and birth. Here then we see that while sexual reproduction is disconnected from the prefigurative function of the relationship between the sexes in a way that I think can be quite helpful for constructive purposes, it still has a frigoral part to pay in anticipating and moving covenant history toward the arrival of Christ. But the bodies of women are disassociated from that figural function in pointing forward to the hope of the coming Messiah. Bart's focus is on a chain of filiation, reflecting the Trinitarian father and son in a covenant history that moves forward genealogically toward the birth of the Messiah, in which Mary's name might not even be mentioned. And Bart writes of the prefigurative significance of, of Adam. Jesus Christ is the man who, taken from all creation, all humanity, and all Israel, and yet belonging to them and a victim of their curse, was in that direct personal and special immediacy of God to him a creature, man, the seed of Abraham and the son of David. He is the man whose confidence and hope was God alone, but really God, 
who is what he is for all, for all Israel, all humanity, even the whole world. Mary is not named here nor in Bart's discussion of the genealogical tables. And Bart does not acknowledge that Jesus lacks a human father, that God selects a human mother and in so doing excludes the role of the male master of history. There is a strange silence here considering all that Bart said of the exclusion of the male and the creative work of the conception of the incarnation of Christ. So we see Bart gives feminist interpreters good cause to find in his readings of Genesis 1 and 2, a phallocentric logic, a reproduction of the same, an elision and effacement of the maternal body and any figurative significance it might occupy in covenant history as it moves toward the coming of the sun. In this paternal transmission and movement of covenant history from father to son, mothers must be ignored. And now it is Mary's part that is excluded rather than the male master of human history. I've attempted to show how the maternal body appears in these texts as problematic sites for Bart, arising where it dies only in the form of refusal and rejection. The female body's generative capacities are not virile enough to afford imagery that can suitably depict God's creative activity, yet it is too active to depict the role of the earth and the dust that God uses to create animal and human and plant life. That's why I recognize, along with many others, that Bart is here in the Genesis narratives, rejecting a valorization of maternity that was very powerful and problematic in his contemporary context. At the same time, I have shown that Bart's aversion to maternal imagery is also deeply implicated in the capacity of female bodies to reproduce offspring and the threat this poses to introducing a natural theology. From the vantage point of these texts, it would seem that Bart can secure no place for such generativity in his theological imaginary one in which the divine father begets a son and reproduces a copy of that filial relationship with the creature, which in turn is reflected in the relationship of creaturely fathers and sons. Generative third parties can only interfere with this picture of divine creative potency and creaturely incapacity. Only arid, barren, dead-like material has a place here to secure the miracle and potency of God's life-sustaining work. So then the virgin conception, the maternal body had to be neutralized in order to secure God's miracle. And in the creation scenes, it must be exiled completely, lest its generative capacities suggest a creaturely collaboration with the work of God. Today, I focus on but one of the many ways in which gender assumptions and gendered imagery come into play in Bart's theology. Here, specifically, in the collusion of hyperphallic divine imagery with a threatening maternal fecundity. I would suggest that if we want to find a dialogue partner in Bart for future liberative purposes, we need to pay careful attention to these sorts of elisions and evasions, to the sort of problems that Keller's brief critique raises. It is better not to dismiss them as Jenkins does, for even as fleeting as these moments may be, they expose the broader questions in Bart's legitimization of hierarchical social relations. So they require careful interrogation to see how deeply they run through Bart's theological edifice. So I'd say Jenkins is wrong to Lord's Bart's, Lord Bart's aversion to maternal imagery here merely as his definitive no to Nazi ideology. There's far more going on here. But at the same time, Jenkins draws attention to counter-images in his reading of the Garden of Eden. Beautiful scenes of Adam's relationship, subdependency, and responsibility to multiple creaturely others. And so my hope is that like Jenkins, we too might find in Bart such other such scenes and other such imagery. And that with these counter-images, we can correct and critique these more problematic images. And, and in this hashtag Me Too moment, we have good reason to worry about a weaponized logos that pierces the creature no matter how much it wiggles. A virile, eruptive, phallic power 
that allows no competitors other than barren, lifeless earth. A life-threatening divine assault upon an Adam who must be put to sleep first, precisely for that purpose. A woman's silence that is read by the male penetrative gaze as yes, as a consent to male desire. A way forward in dialogue with Bart would require setting side by side, side by side, both beautiful images and these very problematic ones in order to interrogate and critique Bart's theology. But we dare not ignore these problematic images and what they say about his use of gender and humankind's relationship to its multiple creaturely others. Thank you. <laughs>